The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. there prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They begin to be sorrowful and say to him and one another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And, they, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join the volunteers by the kids inside. And it's your kids' first sign. Please go with them so we can check them in. Thanks, Carrie. Good morning. If you're new here, my name is Jared. I'm on staff as well. And we're so delighted that you're here. We love to know our people. I'll be just outside those doors after the service. Please come by and say hey and introduce yourself. Um, My old friend Len Teague said you can't possibly think you could minister to somebody if you don't know their name. And so I'm going to try my hardest to know all of your names and love for you to know mine as well. We have definitely hit the turning point of Mark If this is your first time, we've actually been slowly walking through the book for some time. But something happens when you break up a book so much. Um, Actually, I'm going to pause that right this quick real second because I forgot to make an announcement I was supposed to make to you. So we'll come back to breaking up Mark. Um, If you're in the room and your child would like to go to intro communion class, this is different than children's church. It's for our kids and teens. Intro to communion class. That's happening for the first time right now. 
in the suite on Broad, and you could go with your child or teen if you think they're ready to begin taking communion. It'll be the first week of five. And so if you need to stand up and walk out right now, I won't be offended. I'll be a little offended, but I won't act like I'm offended. Okay, that's probably, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, so that was my announcement. Now getting back to where we were, one of the problems with um, rightly breaking up the scripture so that you can dive deep in it is that you sort of lose the sense of the moment. And so it's good that we study deep, but we can sort of lose the sense of the moment. I want you to hold everything in your head that's about to happen as the night before tomorrow they're going to kill him. Everything we talked through this morning is a description of the night that tomorrow they're going to kill him. And so it just raises the tension in the study dramatically. What he's saying to them will be his final words to them. And it's with that that we turn our attention to it. One of the main themes of our study this morning is to fight this quote. Listen. There are some scholars such as Albert Schweitzer who points to this moment in Jesus' history, in Jesus' story, and say here, here is where Jesus became a helpless victim in the grinding cogs of history. Here is where Jesus became a helpless victim in the grinding cogs of history. So the question is, the Pharisees... The scribes, the teachers of the law, are after him to kill him. His betrayer is in the room, and his disciples will disappear into the dark. And does Jesus have any power over what's going on right now? Does Jesus have any power over his death? Does Jesus have any power over your deaths? Let's pray and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I beg your spirit this morning. Please come. We welcome your presence. If you don't come, this will just be a ritual practice describing another ritual practice. But if your Holy Spirit would come, you could make the book live to us. You could minister to our wounds. You could encourage us in our fears. You could comfort us in our sorrows. You could lift our chins from our sin and our shame. And I can't do these things. But you can. Would you send your spirit powerfully this morning? We want to see Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. When I was 16 years old, and much cooler than I am today. I got a 1992 Honda Accord EX. The EX meant that it had the moonroof, not just a sunroof, but a moonroof. And I put a sound system from Best Buy in it so that I could listen to 2000s rap. And it was, yeah, that's right. And it was amazing. It was amazing. I felt very, very cool in my car. And not too long after that, I went on a missions trip to Haiti, and it sort of changed my life. I believed that I was a believer before then, but I believe going to Haiti was the beginning of my call to ministry. And so once I got back from Haiti to more seriously pursue Jesus, I do what all people do, which is get a cross necklace. And I got that cross necklace, and I put it over my rearview mirror, which meant, of course, that I was taking my faith very seriously, 
And it meant that if I got pulled over, I might be less likely to get a ticket. And it hung over my mirror, and it looked great. And there was a time that I was going with my best friend to one of the best burger places in town called Carl's Drive-In. And we would go to Carl's Drive-In, and it had, on the way to Carl's Drive-In, it had this one strange intersection where the people who were turning had the right-of-way, and the people who were going straight had to stop. So it was a little disorienting, but we knew we had been on that road a lot of times. And so here we were coming, and we're turning, but we have the right-of-way, and a car that is coming straight and is supposed to stop doesn't stop at all and keeps coming. And I slam on my brakes so that we get in a head-on collision. And with my left hand, I honked the horn and held it down as long as I can. And with my right hand, I made an angry gesture. And as I made the angry gesture, my hand punched the cross of the rearview mirror. It was like the Holy Spirit was looking at me like, dude, really? <laughs> really? You're going to punch the cross while you're giving somebody the bird? This moment where a total lack of godliness clashes, clashes with God. And that's what this moment, this night is about. A total lack of godliness clashing with God himself. There are those in the room who are trying to undermine his plan. They want him to be a military leader. There are those in the room who say they're for him, but they'll disappear into the dark. There's one in the room who has followed him faithfully and is going to betray him later that evening. And then there's God. There's Jesus, the Son of God in the room. And the question is, what happens when so much godlessness clashes with God himself? you think it would be destruction, condemnation, shame. And instead, when they clash with God, they get their feet washed and their bellies fed, and they get told, I'm coming back for you. Friends, I tell you that so that you will understand that he is used to dealing with failures. Hold in context that night, that night when he's washed their feet and he's fed them through Passover, they will all wander off into the dark and he knew it was going to happen because he had just told them. So he feeds them and washes their feet even though they're going to fail. So that people like you and me would know he loves us even though he knows we're going to fail. Well, let's look at a few things this morning. Jesus is sovereign even over his own death. Jesus is sovereign even over his own death. And we'll show you why that matters. Jesus is sovereign even over his own death. This is verses 12 through 16. And on that first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. And whenever he enters the house, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room and where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready and there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. 
Why in the closing moments of Mark's gospel and talking about Jesus' life does Mark waste this time talking about the man with the jar of water? This secret moment where they're going to go find out where to celebrate the Passover. Why does Mark waste his time? And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. Just as he had told them. Like he says, I am going to die. So that they would realize he knew what he was talking about. He would say, my betrayer is here. So that they could look back and go, he knew what he was talking about. When he says, all will fall away. And that's going to happen here soon in Mark. It says, they all fled into the dark. And when they flee into the dark, they will remember back to this moment and think, he told us we were going to flee. Remember, he told us about the water jar thing. He told us about Judas, even though we didn't know who it was. He is tracing these moments to build their faith so that as they move forward in the story, they can also look back. They can say, when I don't understand, when I don't like what's going on, when I am confused, I can look back to see that he has been who he, who he says he has been, that he will do what he says he will do. I know it's just such a small point, but I want you to linger there Albert Schweitzer says this is the point where Jesus loses total control. Mark says this is where Jesus is in total control. Nothing is outside of his sovereignty here. And as they and the disciples went out to the city and found it just as he had told them. It was important that he got to talk to his followers one last time and institute this supper. And so he kept it a secret where they would spend the Passover. A secret so that Judas wouldn't know where they were going. In other words, he doesn't say, meet me at 1103 Donkey Lane, and that's where we're going to have Passover. Instead, he says, here's what's going to happen. Two of you will know, and I'm not going to tell you the address. Someone's going to wind your way there. And remember, we're going to talk about Passover in a few minutes. But remember, all of this, these preparations, they're, they're planning for a meal Passover. This was the meal after, right up before, after the nine plagues and with one more left. The most famous story of the Old Testament, God rescues his people from Egypt after 400 years of slavery. And they were going to gather around and they were going to kill a lamb and they were going to spread the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. So it was a meal before a great deliverance. And when the angel of God would go through Egypt, either there would be a person dead or the lamb would be dead. And God protected his people because they could sacrifice the lamb and the lamb would be the substitute for the dead son in the house. And he was in control. That's what Jesus is taking. They celebrated this festival for 1,500 years until this moment. And Jesus takes this meal on the night before a great deliverance and says, all of that was pointing to me, to this moment, to this meal. Jesus is sovereign in difficulty. There are those of you here who are in serious difficulty in your job, your personal life, your marriage. You're in serious jeopardy. And you tend to conclude God must not be in control. That's what it looked like from the outside. Jesus has 
11 best friends who are going to run away, one friend who's a betrayer, and the rest of Israel is after him to kill him. It looks like things are out of control. And Jesus is in control. And it reminds us that even when things seem out of control for us, he is in control. This is way back from the Exodus story. I want you to hear this. Bear with me just a second. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, even though that was shorter. Listen to this. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by desert road toward the Red Sea. Did you hear it? It's as if Moses gives us a little peek beyond the curtain and gives us a little insight into God's thinking. And it says, for God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. God takes their weakness into account as he lays out his plan. And there are parts of you that think maybe God was with me. Maybe God was near me. Maybe God was ministering to me and pursuing me. And then I made this choice. I did this one thing. I messed up. And because I've messed up, I'm now shifted off of the plan of providence God has for me. Friends, let me encourage you. God takes your mistakes into account even as he charts his providence Jesus is showing here, I am in total control, even though it looks from the outside that I have no control at all. If Jesus is sovereign in his death, how much more is he sovereign in your little deaths too? Job, famous story of Job. Job, a righteous man in the Old Testament who had had God and the devil make a wager on him to see if his faith was was real. And so God lets the devil take it out on Job, take away his wealth, take away his children, even take away his health. And he's sitting broken and has nothing left. And his friends come to try and comfort him, but essentially they just blame him for his suffering. And Job gets so angry and frustrated with them and so angry and frustrated at God. And he looks at me and says, I am suffering. So what's wrong with you, God? I am in I am in trouble, so what's wrong with you? You must not be in control. You must not be who I said you were. And watch this. It's a famous moment in history. God could pull Job aside and say, Job, look, you didn't see Job 1 and 2, but I'm going to tell you what happened. There was this wager that went on, and I needed to prove something to the devil. And so that's why you're going through all this. I hope that makes you feel better. I hope that puts you at ease. No. God looks at him and says, Brace yourself and answer me like a man. Who marked off, excuse me, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it or where its footing set? Or who laid its cornerstone? When all the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made its clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for its place and set the doors and bars in its place, who said the sea may come this far and no farther? Now, God doesn't always speak postured that way towards us and our woundedness. This is a special account of him speaking that way about jo- to Job because God, Job is speaking that aggressively towards him. But basically what God tells Job is, it's not your business what I'm doing. You weren't there 
when the foundations of the earth, you weren't there. But I am in control. And I am going to bless you, Job. You don't know that yet, but I'm going to bless you. And just like God says, it's not your business. You don't have to know in order to obey. He is in control and he's going to bless us. It's what happens here with Jesus. Is Jesus is telling them, you don't know just how bad it's about to get, fellas. You talking tough. Is it me? Is it me? You're all going to be running into the dark. And I'm still in control. And I will still bring good out of it. How about you? What are the little deaths that you're experiencing? Is it possible, just possible to believe that he is still sovereign in your death, in those little deaths, just as he's sovereign here, that he knows what he's doing, that you can trust him, and that he will carry you through. If he's sovereign in his death, he's sovereign in our deaths too. When you are facing difficulties, you can be reminded that your difficulties do not indicate the absence of God. In fact, the difficulties indicate the presence of God. He says, through many trials and hardships, one must go to enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, I suffered, you too will suffer. Your sufferings are a mark that you actually are in the family of God and that you trust in him. In other words, it's not an indication of his absence from your life. It's an indication of his presence in your struggle. Well, you see that he shows sovereignty. He shows control even over how he lays his death down. But you also see the prediction of his betrayal, the prediction of his betrayal. And this is important for us to study as well. Look with me in verse 17. Then it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it, is it I, he said to them? It is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man, excuse me, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him, for that man, if he had not been born. He's sovereign in his difficulties and in his death, and he is sovereign in his prediction of his betrayal. He's sovereign in his prediction of his betrayal. Why does he not tell him who it is? He says four times, it's one of you, it's one of you, it's one of the 12, it's one of you. Why not just tell them, hey guys, it's him. It's him. He's the one who's going to do this. It would be able to put them at ease, be able to calm them down. But you see, he wants every single one of the 12 to examine their hearts to examine their hearts, to see what's really in there. John 13, listen how human this moment is. This is John's recounting of the same moment. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And his disciples just stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. And one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. So John's head is right near Jesus. And Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. And John's like, 
John leans in, leaning back against Jesus. He asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. There's 12 of them there. And he wants all of them to be self-examining of how much Jesus means to them because they're about to have to answer that question with their lives. Surely not I. They were saddened and one by one they said to him, again, this, this moment, Mark says, one after another after another. We envision that they're all like, surely not I, said Jesus. It's more like the scene where they go around and look one at the other it's not me, is it? They look at Jesus' face, and then the, the next one, it's not, surely it's not me, Jesus. They don't know. And that's what you need to see from this moment. Three years of following Jesus, Jesus with Judas Iscariot, and we know the end of the story, that it's Judas, but they don't know. They don't know. What does that mean? You can follow Jesus. You can do work in God's name. You can look like you are very proximately close to him and your heart be very far away. If you're here today and you sort of follow Jesus theoretically in this vague way, the sense of you're trying to do good and not trying to do bad, you just want to live a good life and be okay with God, sort of using Christianity as a way to make you feel better, being on the inside as a way to make you feel better, I encourage you, be careful. You can look like you're one of his followers and be very far away from him. This is from Psalm 41.9, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared the bread, has turned against me. Have you self-examined your heart? Is your understanding of your own sin that you are getting worse or is it that you're getting better? Getting worse or is it that you're getting better? And premarital counseling, during one of the sessions, I do a lot of premarital counseling, in one of the sessions I make them admit out loud to me and to the other that I could cheat on this one whom I love. And then a few breaths later, I give him a break, and then I say, and I went, oh, I want you to admit out loud, I could divorce you. Now, none of you are ever going to come to premarital counseling with me ever again. <laughs> but I, ma I make them do that because I want them to understand there is more brokenness in here than I understand at this moment. And you have these two sweet in sets of eyes, this engaged couple looking at each other like, there is no way I could even raise my voice to this person. How could I possibly cheat on them? But I want them to know that part of caring for your marriage is knowing just how bad things are on your inside. Part of caring for your faith is to know just how bad things are on the inside. You're not just about to turn things around. The nearer you will get to Jesus, the more overwhelmed you will be with the status of your heart. 
Meaning right now, it's just like, oh, I'm trying to get these big boulders of sin out of my way. I'm just trying to get them pushed off and down the road. And then I'll, I'll be good. I won't be perfect, of course, but I'll be good. And every time you throw one of those boulders down, you find 10 more in its place. And you realize, oh, now I don't just care about the big, bad, ugly things. I care that my goodness isn't good enough. Now I care that my worship is distracted and I don't want it to be distracted. Now that I care that my generosity and my money, I used to give some away. Now I want to give it all away. Part of your growth in Christ isn't feeling better about yourself. It's about being more and more aware of your sinfulness and more and more in worship and gratitude grateful for Jesus. The reason that it doesn't bum you out all the time, you're like, oh, great news. We get to feel worse and worse each day from here on out. The reason that it doesn't bum you out all the time is because every time you see more and more of your sin, you think, oh, he loved me in this. I didn't even know to say sorry for this yet, and he already loved me. You see, each time you pull back another level of your sin, you pull back another love of your Savior. Your biggest problem with sin isn't being a sinner. It's the difficulty admitting how deep it really goes. What Jesus is showing here with 11 friends who are going to disappear into the dark and one friend who is going to go and have him killed, that it's the dirty and the messed up and the broken and the hopeless and the fallen and those who make poor choices, those are the ones who understand what grace really is. Those are the ones at the table with Jesus. If it surprises you that you could actually do worse, then you are not ready yet to look at how much Jesus loves you. Jesus is not a life coach. He is not a cleaning company. He is not a therapist urging you to live your better life. Jesus is a savior of sinners and your king. If you're not a sinner, you don't need Jesus. So if you're asking yourself, I want so much to need him, I want so much to love him, I want so much to worship him, maybe the problem isn't your moral work and effort, maybe it's that you don't think you're really that bad. The point of Judas in this story is not to put you at ease, at least I'm not Judas. The point of Judas in this story is to make you squirm. What if Judas thought he was in? For three years he did. I'll follow this guy. I'll try and do what he tells me. We have to come to grips with how bad we are. There's this great clip. I want you to Google it later. It's called The Honest Preacher. The Honest Preacher. And it's this guy. There's this, it's a comedic clip, just so you know. And there's this guy. It's a pastor like me, except he's wearing the robe and the, the whole thing. And he goes up, and he's just about to preach a sermon, and then you see him go, Guys! Sometimes you're bad! You're supposed to be good! Don't be jerks. You're so supposed to be good. I'm in my office every day, and you're like, whoops, I did. And I'm like, don't. <laughs> and then the pastor goes on, Dan, what is your deal? If anybody doesn't know, Dan is the worst. I took a vow to not say who the worst is, but it's Dan. <laughs> you guys are making me look bad in front of God. Oh, look, it's Jesus. And he said, stop it. And then he says, and this is the word of the Lord. And he steps down <laughs> off the stage. This pastor expects that his congregation stops sinning. 
I expect that you will keep sinning, but that your sin will bother you more and more and more to live a humble life before him and that your sin will drive you to worship because you know what you've been saved from. Just as it is written, he is in complete control. Listen to me, verse 21. For the Son of Man goes that is written of him. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. The Son of Man goes as it is written for him. He knows. He is in control of his final moments. He wants them to examine their hearts. He believes God's word. And lastly, this beautiful supper. Linger with me here just a couple moments. He says this, 22 through 31. As they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, it broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and we had given thanks. He gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. Listen. And when they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I have strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you. This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Jesus institutes a dinner for failures that are that night going to fail him. Why? It's because they can say, looking back, he wanted them to know that he knew. So that they could say, he told us that we were going to fail him and he washed our feet and he loved us and fed us anyway. He knew we were going to fail and he washed our feet and he fed us anyway. He wanted them to have that, that memory of the fact that he was aware of their failures and was feeding them as friends. It says this in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. Listen to this. We get the wine and the finest meats. He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples and the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. On the menu for you and me is rich wine and rich meat, and I'm sure there'll be something gluten as well. And on the menu for him is death that's what he'll eat so that it'll never come for you and me. And he'll not just deal with our death, he'll deal with our disgrace. Did you hear that in there? Most of us encountering Jesus, we'd have to look away. There'd be so much ickiness to it. You know my heart. And he said, no, you'll beam when you smile at me because I'll be smiling back. There's no disgrace. 
and in your pain and in the difficulties we talked about as we started the day of is God sovereign over your difficulties? Does he care? He will tenderly wipe away every tear on every eye in the wedding of the lamb. He'll say, I know that was hard to persevere through and I was with you and I'm making it right. Would you let anyone else touch your face that closely? That's how he cares for his people. He comes, remember this is the Jesus who comes eating and drinking with sinners. Let me say this and we'll close here. We've been working through Mark. In Mark 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 men, which we think is 15 or 20,000 people. And he takes bread and he gives thanks and he breaks it and he feeds 15 or 20,000 people. In a different story, in Mark 8, there's 4,000 men, 10 or 15,000 people. And he takes bread, and he gives thanks, and he breaks it, and he feeds all of these people. So by now, you think the disciples who have watched him do this would see when Jesus gets a piece of bread in his hand, you go, everybody, everybody, watch this. They knew something amazing was going to happen. But instead of physically feeding 15,000 or 12,000, he is spiritually feeding all those failures who would put their trust in him. So when Jesus gets bread in his hands, you watch closely and say, this is where he feeds those that can't feed themselves. That's what he's doing at the table. He feeds his failure friends because they can't feed themselves. If there's anything I want you to get from this is that grace is for failures. Grace is for failures. Jesus is, John the Baptist is reported as saying, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in Passover, the guy's supposed to hold up the bread and said, this is the bread of my affliction. And instead of saying, Jesus, this is the bread of my affliction, he says, this is my body. I will become the affliction so that you will never have to. You see, in Passover, Someone dies or the lamb dies in its place. And in the new world, you will die or the lamb will die in your place. This is this final moment in Revelation 5. We'll close here. This is when all believers from all over the world, tribe, tongue, language, and nation, all over the world are finally gathered for the feast of the lamb. Jesus will be unveiled to his people. And we will stand in worship with no disgrace and with no more tears in our eyes. And we will worship our God for his loving, generous, sacrificial death for us. And it says this, in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and all that is in the sea and all of them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, to the lamb be praise and honor and glory forever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. It's all about the lamb. For Passover it was you You put your trust in the blood of the lamb and you will be rescued the death of the angel of destruction. And now it's you put your trust in the blood of Jesus the lamb 
and you will be rescued. You will be a part of the feast of the Lamb that great day. If you've never put your trust in the Lamb, don't wait. This is, now is the time. Today is the day for you. And if you've put it in it but gotten cold and wandered off, I encourage you, your trust is not in your work. Your trust is not in your feeling bad about your sin. Your trust is not in your good habits. Your trust is in the Lamb. Now let's go and live like it. Let's pray. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Jesus, we ask that you would pour out your spirit right now for chins that are aimed at the floor in shame. Would you remind them that they can trust in the worthy of the lamb, the worthiness of the lamb. And for those who have never put their trust in you before God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, kindly welcome them in and say, you're safe here in the lamb. God, we want to believe that when this table when this bread is broken, that you are going to feed so many. Would you make it happen now? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God, we want to believe that when this table, when this bread is broken, that you are going to feed so many. Would you make it happen now? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.